your risk assessment in ESG is called a materiality assessment. And what you're really assessing is how your employees view materiality, not just your employees, a wide variety of stakeholders. And if you look at the business roundtables statement on the purpose of a corporation, you see that that includes uh, suppliers, customers, employees, shareholders, and even the locales where you do business. So your materiality assessment comes from a wide variety of stakeholders. So it makes sense that you would port a wide variety of information going forward. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance on the ESG report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. In this episode, I take a look at a couple of different items for consideration in ESG. The first one is materiality. And what is material? What's the materiality debate? This comes to us from an article by clearly Gottlieb lawyers in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, where they ask, what is materiality? And what is the materiality debate? There is clearly continued focus on the scope of the disclosure of ESG information, but there's a interest in what should be considered material for the purpose of securities laws. Clearly, the SEC has roles in this, and some have continued, rather defended the traditional role of financial materiality as one that impacts the disclosure on ESG. However, that may not be the final answer. And what the authors believe is that investors may indeed have the last word on really what is material. And as ESG considerations move into the mainstream, potential for ESG information to impact share price is becoming more important. So what is the materiality debate? More investors than ever are asking these types of questions. Companies are producing it voluntarily. Hopefully we'll get some SEC guidance shortly. But at this point, there is really a a robust debate over ESG as a mainstream concern that should impact the legal definition of materiality. The traditional view of financial materiality is that it directly impacts a company's economic valuation. However, certain SEC commissioners have recently discussed materiality in a broader concept encompassing really uh, data that investors ask or that they deem important. And if you think about a materiality assessment, You're really assessing what a wide variety of stakeholders think is important. So that would seem to be a good way to tie it together. In Europe, the authors talk about the concept of, quote, double materiality, end quote, which would require companies to consider the impact of their activities on the environment and society. Obviously, this is an anathema to the GOP and the Republican members of the SEC, as they want no part of anything that would require companies to talk about the impact on the environment and society and want a straight financial type reporting. But materiality today is whether there's a substantial likelihood that the disclosure of an admitted fact would be viewed by a reasonable investor as having significantly 
alter our total mix of information available. So the impact of any particular piece of information thus remains a key element of materiality. The scope of information that investors have called for recently has expanded far beyond financial information, human capital, DEI, social justice, corporate governance. Obviously, climate change is uh, first carbon neutral, all of these types of areas. And of course, there are many different stakeholders. If you look at the business roundtable statement on the purpose of the corporation, there are five stakeholders, shareholders, employees, third parties, localities, and society at large. And these are increasingly incorporating ESG information into their business decisions, not simply on a financial basis. And climate change and environmental sustainability issues do remain paramount, but diversity in workplace culture, as I said, human capital is clearly important. Materiality and financial performance, this really reflects what the market seems to think, because remember, the market is what people think your stock is going to do. So some risks, such as regulatory and litigation, are associated with a company's environmental hazards, and that could definitely impact share price valuation, as could its financial rating or insurance ability to get robust insurance coverage. And this point also, however, applies to both the uh, S and the G, or the social and the governance issues as well. And the authors pointing out that shareholder lawsuits involving culture of harassment in the workplace, role of senior execs in concealing it. You only need to look at Activision Blizzard to see how such issues can really drive down a stock price to the point where Activision Blizzard had to sell itself or offer itself to Microsoft. So these really, it's broadened things out in a way that obviously the Republicans don't want this to occur, but I think the broader investing community really has made the decision that they want to see a bigger or broader time or broader amount of information in materiality going forward. And in response to demands from investors, many companies have started producing ESG disclosure information on all prongs. It's both specific and concrete. The time when investors could be satisfied with generalized statements certainly seems to be behind us. And my guess would be the SEC would really move beyond that as well. But as disclosures become more concrete, as investors are increasingly making decisions, investing decisions, based upon the ESG information. Engine company number one is a prime example of last year where Exxon had four proposed slate of boards of directors. Three out of four were defeated by a shareholder because Exxon refused to engage in a discussion with investors in a meaningful way. So investors put up their own candidates for board, and now Exxon is promising carbon neutrality by 2050, which is a a huge change. And as more and more investors make investment decisions based on ESG information, which may have limited or, or even no direct impact on financial valuation, this can lead to ESG information really becoming material, even under the current definition of materiality. So as the concerns of investors continue to expand the type of information companies need to produce may well expand as well. So what are some of the clear shareholders' concerns? The authors point out, well, environmental impact and efforts to implement sustainable practices, supply chain management with respect to suppliers' environmental practices, treatment of employees, other human capital issues with respect to issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. And of course, considerations towards customers and surrounding communities. 
So the definition of materiality is clearly expanding, and it's going to be interesting to see where the SEC comes down on this issue. But remember, your risk assessment in ESG is called a materiality assessment. And what you're really assessing is how your employees view materiality, not just your employees, a wide variety of stakeholders. And if you look at the business roundtables statement on the purpose of a corporation, you see that that includes uh, suppliers, customers, employees, shareholders, and even the locales where you do business. So your materiality assessment comes from a wide variety of stakeholders. So it makes sense that you would port a wide variety of information going forward. Now, I'd like to take a look at a very interesting post from Lawrence Heim, the editor of Practical ESG, and he lays out some questions companies should ask themselves about their ESG program. The questions, I'm just going to go down his list and and really discuss some of these. Number one is ESG determining your company's competitiveness. So how does ESG determine competitiveness? If a company places too much energy into ESG, does it risk losing focus on growth, market share, or profits? Or does competitiveness mean a wide variety of topics and issues such as ESG? For instance, can you attract a joint venture or other business partners if your ESG effort is deemed less than robust? What about financial ratings? What about how the market views you? What about how customers view you? So you certainly have to take ESG objectives into account, but you have to balance that, of course, with focusing on growth, market share, and profits in a meaningful way. Two, does driving your ESG agenda mean sacrificing your company's returns? Obviously, I don't believe that's the case, but there's a wide group, particularly in the GOP side of the house and very conservative commentators who believe that anything other than a financial return sacrifices your company's returns. I think what the marketplace is telling us, though, is that the marketplace and investors want a more robust ESG agenda. And as we looked at materiality in the prior section, clearly see that a wide variety of stakeholders are really pushing all of this forward in a way that has changed literally uh, over the past few years going forward. Next up, how are you navigating ESG trade-offs? The shift of a world from financial shareholder primacy to a broader stakeholder capitalism has been ongoing for quite some time. This means you have to make trade-offs. In many ways, it is similar to the three most important things in a compliance program, which is document, document, document. What are the trade-offs you made? How did you document those? Did you adjust as you would with any risk management portfolio or protocol? It's all about uh, assessing your risk, then monitoring your risk, and then adjusting your risk management strategy based upon that monitoring. So how do you navigate those trade-offs? What's your protocol? Are you following your protocol? Do you have exemptions from your protocol? If so, are they properly documented? Number four, how does ESG change due diligence? Previously, we looked at due diligence, particularly from the compliance perspective, simply in terms of how much anti-corruption compliance or other significant issues were involved. But ESG, I think, really changes that because it is going to broaden out to a much more broader variety of issues and stakes for stakeholders 
for the entire E and S and G. So you have to be able to not only look at those, document those, but factor those in to who you do business with and with how. Number five, should you become a public benefit corporation? Do companies need to examine the implications of changing their status from a Delaware LLC to a B Corp, for example, as Heim asks? And business leaders need to be alert in changes and decisions and rights and restrictions under a public benefit corporation. But it may be that you have enough of a focus, that's the direction you should go. Number six, should corporations address societal concerns such as racial equity? Well, here the answer is clearly the marketplace demands it and your employees demand it. And if your corporation is racist, sexist, a misogynist, or any of those other negatives, it's going to negatively impact your share price and potentially make you a target. And that's clearly what happened to Activision Blizzard as they had a horrible culture. They attacked those who whistle blew about their corrupt culture. It turns out their CEO had hidden sexual harassment issues from the board of directors, and their share price was so downgraded, they had to sell themselves to Microsoft. So you absolutely have to address these issues, and employees are most concerned about these issues as well. Certainly, younger employees are very concerned about this. And if you want to have many people think the biggest battle in the second half of this decade of the 21st century will be over talent and talent acquisition and talent retention. And if you don't address these concerns, the top talent is probably going to go out the door. Number seven, how do you develop a global approach to ESG? Certainly, you have to be comprehensive with a wide variety of different countries and cultures. And you need to think about China and India. You need to think about materiality in those parts of the world. But if you're a multinational company, you actually have experience in this in dealing with multiple cultures, certainly around bribery and corruption. So although this could be a challenging task, it's certainly not one that you can't do. And more importantly, it's one that you have to do. Great. How do you build an ESG framework that's future-proof for tomorrow's economic realities? Well, business leaders need to focus on ESG design and having a system thinking that applies to them. So it's not structured simply for today, but what we found in compliance, I think, certainly applies that if you assess your risk, monitor your risk, manage your risk around a risk management portfolio or protocol, that that's going to be broad enough to get you through where a future proof. What about number nine? How do you vet a company's performance of ESG? Well, external auditors for financial, operational, and cyber exist. Why can't you do the same around ESG? There's right now no global body or national regulatory organization. Nevertheless, there are numerous consultancies, consultants, persons who can help you to perform due diligence. And finally, how should corporations navigate the ever-changing landscape of ESG? Once again, as you devise metrics to track ESG, you must be able to compare company performances across time and peers, but also you have to be aware of current or other changes, and you're going to have to track those. But once again, this is what compliance officers do day in and day out. And this is one of the reasons I advocate that compliance should lead the ESG effort going forward. We're going to link to both of these articles in the show notes. I hope you will check them out. They're very informative for your ESG program, and I think every compliance practitioner needs to take a look at them.